0: That he travels, and it just, it reminds me that even from my own life, and I think from some of y'all's lives, that you know, like, wherever you go, there's Christians there. There's believers there. And that is encouraging. That is really encouraging. You can go to some of the uh, remote places of the earth, and there's believers there. And, and the coolest thing is, I was talking with someone about this recently, is that when we meet other Christians and other believers, like, there is a connection there that is unlike sometimes even with our own families, right? I've got people in my family that aren't Christians, and I love them, and I've got a good relationship with them, but someone else that might not be from my family that's a Christian, there's a connection there because the Holy Spirit is in both of us, and I think that's what we're seeing throughout the book of Acts and a little bit what we're going to see here. So today we're talking about Acts um, Acts chapters 20 and 20, 21 and 22, but I just want to back up a little bit. Because the senior speak, we bounced around a little bit, so... Last week, Acts chapter nineteen, Caleb spoke on that, and he talked about how these early disciples of John the Baptist—John uh, the Baptist was uh, kind of a guy that was a forerunner to Jesus. He kind of set the stage for Jesus. These guys were early followers of John the Baptist, and um, Paul comes to these guys and he's like, "Hey, do you guys have the Holy Spirit?" And they're like, "We haven't heard of this Holy Spirit," and they—they they didn't know about Jesus' death and resurrection yet. They—they they kind of knew about Jesus, and so they end up. Uh, receiving the Holy Spirit, and then it goes on and talks about the seven sons of Sceva. The priest was was Sceva, and they were trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, but they didn't even have Jesus, and like they were they were rebuked for that. And then in the end of chapter nineteen, there ends up being this riot in the area of Ephesus because what happens is Paul and his companions they're sharing the gospel. A lot of people are believing. They're being their lives are being changed, and they're like. Why are we worshiping these idols and these shrines, especially the shrine? There was this one silversmith that made idols or shrines to the god of Artemis, and he didn't like this, and so they kind of start this riot, and some of Paul's, they couldn't find Paul, so they grab some of his companions, they beat them up a little bit, and eventually that riot kind of goes away, and then Paul moves on, and he goes, uh, he goes to, to Greece, Macedonia and Greece, this is in chapter 20, and he encourages the Christian there and the other thing that follows Paul quite often is plots to kill him. I don't know if you've recognized that. But it's like he goes there and then they wanted to kill him. Then he goes there and then he wanted to kill him. And I'm like, this was a, this was a wanted man. And the crazy thing to me is when we think about wanted people, they're usually bad people. Paul is literally sharing the truth of the gospel that will set people free and give them eternal life. And a lot of people want to kill him for that. But it's because it was kind of shaking the foundations of the way things are happening. And I I love uh, the version that Caleb was teaching from last week. I can't remember what version of the Bible he's was in, but I think it's in the NIV. It says that Paul and his companions were turning the world upside down. And I thought that was really cool, just going off of what our series is called, Living in the Upside-Down Kingdom. Because when we live in Jesus's kingdom, it flips our the what we see as the world upside down, and all of a sudden, we're living in this different kingdom. So, Lastly, in chapter 20, Paul visits with the church in Ephesus and the Ephesian Christian leaders. He shares a really cool word of encouragement with them, and eventually he decides to set sail and start making his way back to Jerusalem. If you could bring up uh, the first map that was on there, I just thought it might be kind of cool if you guys want to, I know it's sort of hard to see, but this is sort of tracing his third missionary journey. So far right side, he starts in Antioch, he goes through Cilicia, he goes through the southern portion of Galatia and Lystra. He goes over to Asia. He goes all the way to Macedonia. He goes down to, to Greece, and then he kind of makes his way back up. And we're sort of right now in the middle uh, by... Uh, well, if you go to the next slide, it kind of zooms in a little bit. Yeah. So we're Miletus and Cos. he goes to and Rhodes. Look at that. We've even got a pointer. That's what I'm talking about. That's my finger. We'll move with my finger. Okay. Um, and then he makes his way down to Tyre, which is back towards Jerusalem. So this is this is kind of Paul's journey. I mean, the thing you got to realize too is they didn't have cars back then. Like it wasn't easy to travel. Travel was dangerous, right? Like we know, air travel actually is like the safest. I listened to a whole podcast on this. How air travel is like the safest travel there is out there. Now the problem is though, when one crashes, it's really bad. So, but unlike for Paul, I mean, Paul, he had to he had to walk. When they set sail on a ship, it was really dangerous. I mean, just Paul even going on these journeys in and of itself is pretty crazy. So this is where we pick up. I hope that kind of helped refresh your mind. We pick up in Acts chapter 21. And what I'm going to do today is I'm generally just going to read some verses, and then I'm going to talk about them. I'm going to read some verses, and then I'm going to talk about them. This is called kind of exegetical. Exegetical just means you're sort of going verse by verse and talking about it. And then I want to draw some points out for you. So let's pick up in chapter 21, verse 1. After we, now we is Luke, we is Luke, after we had torn ourselves away from them, that is uh, when he was in Ephesus, uh, I'm sorry, not in Ephesus, in in Macedonia, we put out to sea and sailed straight to coast. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there, if you can throw that mat back up there, Brendan, if you can throw that mat back up there, that was the smaller one, that'd be awesome. Brendan, can you throw the mat back up there? Sorry. Once I already distracted you, I was like, I might as well keep going. Yeah. So so you can, Sorry, one more before that. There we go. So you can track what's happening. Uh, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia. We went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus, so Cyprus, the island down there. So that was like landmark. They, could, they know, okay, here's where we're going. And passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed in Tyre where our ship was un- unloaded its cargo. And I actually read somewhere in my study that it would take them a week to unload the cargo. They didn't have forklifts back then. It was, it was by hand. We sought out the disciples there. Remember I talked about going wherever, you, wherever they go is like there was disciples there. So he says, we thought out, sought out the disciples, that was the Christians, and stayed there with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now I want to come back to that in a minute, okay? There's an important thing here. It says, through the Spirit... They urged Paul not to go into Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. Now, I want, to, I want to stop there. This first section, I'm calling, I'm giving you three principles today on kingdom living. And the first one I want to give you is, it's just called the human element. The human element. And what I mean by that is, like, living in the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. The Holy Spirit's in us. Remember, who's the main character of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is the main character of the book of Acts. So, But in the midst of living in this upside-down kingdom, in the midst of living in the spiritual kingdom, there's a human element. And I think we see the human element in this chapter. And it's okay to recognize that there's a human element. And I want to talk about it a little bit because they, these believers there in Tyre, they say to Paul, and it says, through the Spirit. So this isn't like Luke was very Luke was a very detailed writer. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He traveled with Paul. He was right there with him. And it says, through the Spirit. So this was through the Holy Spirit. These disciples, these these believers entire, they said to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go. Why? Because they knew that it was there, that there was a really good chance that he would be killed. You know, when he went to all these other places and they plotted to kill him, it was really dangerous there. But it would be even more dangerous dangerous in jerusalem and the reason that it would be more dangerous in jerusalem is because the main people mostly that were after paul were the jews because they're like you're saying you're drawing people away from the jewish faith here and you are taking them over to this christianity and they didn't like it and they were very willing to kill him and so the believers here in tyre they're like don't go to jerusalem But it's interesting because it says they said it in the Spirit. So this isn't like their own thinking. This is like the Spirit spoke to them and said, don't go. But Paul, on the other hand, is like, no, I want to go. And so there seems to be this difference between just telling someone something when it's our own ideas and it being said through the Spirit. And somehow Luke knew this was through the Spirit. And so Picking back up in verse 5, it says, When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. So Paul's like, hey, I appreciate this word and telling me not to go. And I think they said it through the Spirit. And I want to go back, and I I want to hit on that, because when they said it through the Spirit, they meant it. But I think a lot of what they were saying was, Paul, we know the spirit what's coming for you in Jerusalem and it's most likely death and we love you and we care for you and we don't want to see that happen to you but Paul's like but no God has called me to go to Jerusalem and so I am going to do that you know if I think about this sort of in my own life my wife and I we were we were foster parents for like three four five five years Our son's adopted through foster care. Um, We've had other foster children in our home. And the one thing that people sometimes will come and talk to me and be like, hey, we're thinking about getting getting into foster care. And what I tell them, I say, only do that if God calls you to that. Because it's really hard. This is really, really hard. And only do that if God calls you to it. And I think that's in the same way that those, through the Spirit, what they were saying to Paul was. They were saying, Paul, only go if God's calling you. Like, in our love and our care for you, we don't want you to go. We know what's going to happen there. We know how hard it's going to be. Only go if you're called to it. The Spirit was not giving contradictory messages. The believers knew the dangers awaiting Paul. And in their compassionate humanity, they did not want to see Paul be hurt. So, so Paul ends up going. He ends up leaving. And I, just, I love the scene where it says that they gathered his families together, right? There's something just about the unity. Caleb talked last week about the unity of the Spirit. There's something about that unity. If you've ever gone on a mission trip and you go to another country and you spend some time with other believers in another country, when you go to leave, there's like this leaving that's like, man, there's a part of me that's leaving. Like I gave a part of myself there and there's this unity of the Spirit. And, and I can only tell you if you haven't done it, I, I pray that one day you'll be able to experience that kind of feeling. It's when you go and you minister and you serve and there's that unity, there's that tightness there. This is, this is the human element of, of being on mission for God, of living in the upside-down world. We build some of these awesome relationships, and sometimes they end up, we depart, and we kind of leave a part of ourselves there because we love them so much. But Paul leaves, he leaves, and he, and he goes on, and it says they went aboard a ship, and the other people returned home. And now we continue in verse 7. We continued our voyage, voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, and we were greeted, and we greeted the brothers and sisters, and stayed with them for a day. So again, finds the brothers and sisters in Christ there. I think that should be a good example for us wherever we go. Let's look for believers there. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. This is just an interesting note. If you remember back in the Book of Acts, when the early uh, the early Christian leaders are kind of like, "Hey, we need to." Uh, we need to have some other people that are sort of willing to do kind of the service acts, take care of the widows, and and do some of the, the task of the ministry so that the other leaders can be dedicated to the word. And this is where the deacons come from. Well, this guy Philip, he was one of the seven that was chosen. I think it's just cool to see kind of the story of Acts going through here. And then it says, this was Philip, and it said, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So so Philip had these uh, these four daughters. It says when they're unmarried, it means that they were virgins, and they were ones that prophesied. And there's other uh, parts in the book of Acts where it talks about, 1 Corinthians talks about women that were prophesying in the church. And uh, I, don't, I don't really want to spend that much time on this. I just think it's interesting that Luke just sort of makes this comment, like, yeah, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Um, I know in the, some of you may or may not keep up with this, but in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is uh, the, um, the Southern Baptist, it's like the big convention, uh, it's a denomination within the Christian world. And they had a big split within the Southern Baptist Convention because some churches wanted to say that women could be pastors. RBC has a stance that women are not called to have the role of pastor within the church. And I think it's interesting that some people can say, oh, you know, Christians are, they don't want women to, to have any role, they don't want women to do anything. Man, I think the women, you ladies in our student ministry and women in our church play a huge role. Biblically, I don't think they're called to the role of pastor in that term, but women play such a huge role. And I think it's so cool that in the early Christian world, that would have been so countercultural for these women that were prophesying. In, the, in, that, in that culture, in that time of day, women had no rights, very little rights. And I think Luke is going, look, this, this life, this Christian life is open for everybody to live. I, just, I thought that was a cool note, even in the midst of things that are happening inside the Christian world. And I, I just want to say to you ladies, I think you play an important role, super important role within our student ministry. Um, so it says, uh, continuing in verse 10, after we had been there for a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. I've never heard anyone named a kid Agabus. But anyways, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said... The Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul. So again, they plead with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So this, oftentimes when prophets would come, they would, uh, they would also, they had this prophecy that was from the Lord and they were supposed to deliver it, but they also would visually show what was going to happen. So he comes down and he like literally shows like, this is what's going to actually happen to you, Paul. So again... They pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then in verse 13, then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. So this human element, you've got this prophecy coming to St. Paul, this is what's going to happen to you. You've got the believers around and being like, Paul, we don't want to see you go. But at the same time, Paul is like, how can I not go? God has called me to this. And so we've got this wrestling of human things that are happening, these human emotions, this human element. You know, as Christians, we're going to wrestle with these things throughout our journey. Parents are going to wrestle with God calling their kids to go do the things that he calls them to do, and them being like, I don't really want you to do that. That seems scary. That seems hard. Parents are going to wrestle with that. You know, there's parents uh, or other people are going to wrestle with things like money. When you're called to, like, give your money to a certain thing, and people are going to be like, you're crazy. Why are you doing that? And they're good-meaning people. And you're, God calls you to maybe go on a mission trip, and you're like, I don't know. And other people around you are like, I don't know if that's, that's maybe the wisest thing to do. It's not like you're sinning, and then, but you know that God's calling you to it. And we see this human element within the book of Acts. And this is why I love God's word, because it doesn't shy away from the things that happen in real life. This human element of wrestling with these things. It means we'll have, people will have different opinions, and yet the same spirit. And guess what? We're meant to sharpen each other. And sometimes when, when you're like, I think God's calling me to go do this thing, you should go to other believers in your life and say, what do you think? Do you think this is, do you think this is wise? Do you think this is what God's calling me to? And sometimes they might give you a different opinion, and they'll help sharpen that. Maybe someone else gives you this opinion, and you're going to people that you trust, and you're seeking the Lord out. And this is what we see in the book of Acts. Ultimately, what it all comes down to is you being led by the Holy Spirit. But how can you be led by the Holy Spirit if you're not listening to the Spirit? It would be impossible to be led by the Holy Spirit if you're not listening to the Holy Spirit. That's my challenge to you guys. That's my challenge to myself. It's my challenge to us leaders. Are we not close enough with Jesus that we check all the boxes off, but are we walking with him in a way that we can actually hear the Holy Spirit, that if he called us to something that seemed kind of crazy, we'd be like, no, that's actually the Spirit. That really is. They, what it ultimately came down to is those believers spoke by the Spirit. I think they were letting Paul know. What you're going into is dangerous and we love you and we care for you. And Paul is saying, and yes, I am called to go there. It is a supernatural leading as the Holy Spirit leads us. So we're going to take a little minute and we're going to go to our tables and talk about these two questions. Why did the different Christians not want Paul to go to Jerusalem and why doesn't Paul want to heed their advice? So take about four minutes to do that. Come on. Alright, thank you. Alright. Um... We're going to jump into verse 15. It says, After this, we start, started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manassan, uh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So there's a couple cool things to think about here, just from these simple verses. One uh, is that Paul brings around him multiple different kinds of people. He had some that were Jewish that had given the life to Christ. He had some that were Gentiles that had given the life to Christ because he knows he's going to encounter all kinds of different people. So he's like, I want to have a lot of different people around me to be able to minister to all the people that we come to. So then in verse 17, it says, when we arrived at Jerusalem. So they're in Tyre. They go south into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, if you remember, is like the center, still is the center of the Jewish world, of the Jewish faith. So he goes to Jerusalem, but it's also kind of the center of the Christian world. How many of you have ever been to Israel? Okay, if you go to Israel, the craziest thing you'll see is, like, you've got different quarters. You've got the Jewish quarter, which is where all the Jewish people are. You've got the kind of the Christian quarter, which is where all the Christians are. You've got the Islamic quarter. I mean, it's crazy how Jerusalem itself is like the center of the religious world. Everybody stakes a claim there. Really crazy. It's kind of It was, in a lot of ways, the same in Paul's day. So it says, when we arrived to Jerusalem... The brothers and their sisters received us warmly, probably with a cup of coffee. The next day, Paul, Paul and the rest of us went to... Isn't that what all good people do? Give a cup of coffee? I mean, come on. Um, that's why I love going to Elizabeth Johnstone's house. Every time I come over, she's like, do you want a cup of coffee? I'm like, yes, I do. God bless America. Okay. Everybody's, otherwise, I just can't, I'm unbearable to be with. Verse 18. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. Who knows who James is? In this one, you know who it is. James is the half-brother of Jesus. This is this James. He had become like the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So it says the next day we went to see James and all the elders. Elders are like the leaders were present. Now I think it's cool that we're looking at probably two years post when the Holy Spirit came after Jesus had died and they've got this leadership structure set up right? They want to do things well. They've got a good leadership started. And it says, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, some of you might wonder, this is just a little side note, some of you might wonder, why do we do things like take five for the cause celebration? Why do we do things like a bike trip review or a mission team review? The whole reason we do this is because we want to report to each other what God has done. It's biblical to go, let's talk about what God has done. Let's see that he is still working. So then it carries on, and it says, "When they heard this, they praised God." That's the leaders of the the church in Jerusalem. Then they said to Paul, "You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Zealous means passionate for the law. The law being the Old Testament law. If you don't know anything about kind of Judaism and Christianity, Judaism." Uh, continues to follow, their whole goal was to follow the Old Testament law, the law that Moses had set up. And they added, the the priest had added on um, a lot of different laws to it. And it says, They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. Now I want to stop here. So what had happened is, Paul, you don't know the life of Paul. Paul was was Jewish by culture and by faith. He was the one, he says in some of his other letters, he was like the most zealous of them all. He persecuted Christians. He was a Pharisee, top religious leader. He's going to get into a little bit more when he shares his testimony. Top religious leader. He persecuted them. And so Paul, Paul is saying here, or, or James is saying here, Paul, all these people are saying that you're trying to draw them away from following the customs that they, they see as super important to their faith. And this is the Christians, the Christians that had given their life to, to Christ. He's saying you're trying to pull them, trying to pull them away. So, this is, so James is like the leader here, and he's saying, man, I, I, see some of the, I see some of the tension here. So carrying on, this is what James said. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men... Join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their head shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Then it says, The next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So, this seems kind of weird to us, okay? It seems a little weird when we read this. We're like, what? He's supposed to shave his head? He's supposed to go do these purification rites? These are, these are the part of the Old Testament laws. If you can go to the slide that, um, let me see if I can find it. Let's see if the clicker works. There he goes. Numbers 6, 5 through 6. This was back in the Old Testament. This is one of the laws that has to do with this purification rite. It says, all these days, this is the Nazarite vow. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair head grow long all the days that he separates himself to the Lord. He shall not go near a dead body. Um, I think Nation Cho had a Nazarite vow. He just shaved his head recently. I guess he's done with it. Um, Sorry, (laughs) couldn't couldn't help it. Um, But so the whole goal is the reason they're doing this is James is like Paul. Here's what, they knew, they knew Paul was kind of hard-headed. Paul liked to do things the way that he did them. And so they're saying to him, he's saying, Paul, will you do this so that the people, the Christians, the Jewish Christians that are here, will you do this so that they will actually listen to you? We see God working through you. We see these many Gentiles coming to Jesus through your work. And so, Lord, and so they're asking him, well, would he do this? And, you know, the, the uh, I'll go to the next slide. The principle number two is, can you switch to the next slide? I don't know why my clicker won't work. Uh, the principle here is all things to all people, I'm sorry, not to the table here. all things to all people to win some. All things to all people to win some. That's what Paul does. Paul says he goes He does the vow. He does the purification, right? He does the things that he needs to do so that the people would see outwardly, okay, Paul isn't really against all these Old Testament laws. All things to all people to win some. Paul's like, I am willing to do this. Now, Paul had all kinds of reasons to say, I don't want to do this. I don't need to do this. I used to follow this. This does nothing for salvation. Paul had so many reasons to not do it, and Paul says, I will humble myself to be all things to all people, so that some may come to know him. Paul, Paul is not encouraging Jews to abandon their traditions, their culture identity, or their religious identity. Paul's decision was based on cultural Jewish customs, not salvation or sanctification. I need, you gotta, that's really important. Paul wasn't saying, okay, I'm going to change what I say about what it means to have eternal life and salvation or I'm going to change what it means to be sanctified. Paul wasn't saying that. I think sometimes where it's hard for us is we're like, oh, like, what if I go do this thing that, that, some, that some, someone else wants? Well, if it has to do with a different way to salvation or a different way to be made more like Jesus, but Paul wasn't doing it for those reasons. Paul was doing it to look, okay, outwardly, I'll kind of look like this. Let me give you a couple examples that you might sound, think is kind of stupid, but it might help you understand. So growing up, especially growing up. I loved wearing hats. I always wore a hat. I always had a hat on. And in my head, I was like, why can't I wear a hat to church? I was like, who cares? God doesn't care if I have a hat on my head or not. And I grew up in a little more maybe conservative church. And my, my parents had some people in the church come to them and say, you know, Lee really shouldn't be wearing a hat when he goes to church. And honestly, my parents were kind of like, we really don't care. But they were like, you know what? You should be all things to all people so that someone will know Christ. So that this isn't a stumbling block to them. We're asking you not to wear a hat. And I was like, okay, I cannot wear a hat. I know that sounds really simple, but it had, it, that had nothing to do with my salvation. It had nothing to do with my sanctification. It wasn't going to necessarily make me more like Jesus, but it's more about me humbling myself so that it wasn't a stumbling block to other people. And that's what Paul did. I'll give you another more controversial example, okay? Why not go controversial? Uh, when I was a freshman in college, I was like, I'm going to do the freshman in college thing. I'm going to get a tattoo. And wow, you guys are already sighing. I don't even know which which way to go here. Okay. And so um, I was like, I went down to this tattoo shop and I'm had, and i not going to tell you the tattoo I wanted. I was just going to say, I love you, mom. No, it's just something different. And uh, I was going to get it. I put $20 down. They were going to draw up a design. I was going to go back and get it. I left that shop, and I've never had this in my life, and I've never had it since. I broke out in what's called a cold sweat. You ever heard somebody say a cold sweat? I broke out in a cold sweat. I wasn't hot. I was actually cold, but I was sweating. I felt like God said to me, Lee, you should not get a tattoo. This is not what I have for you. I don't want it to be a stumbling block to people. Now, I have no problem with tattoos. I love tattoos. I personally don't think there's anything unbiblical about them. For some people, that is actually God will use that to draw others to them. For my example, God said no. The Spirit said no, to not be a stumbling block. Paul's actions are social, showing respect for the Israelite culture, not putting on undue barriers. So you know what? When we think about the different places that we go, the way that we dress, the things that we eat, the way we talk, what we watch, when we go around different people of different faith, the things that we decide not to eat, the things we decide not to talk about, are so that we can be all things to all people to win some. This isn't a license to sin. This isn't a license to go, I'm going to do whatever I want. This is just saying, Paul gave us an example to say, I will be all things to all people to win some to Christ. So I'm going to turn you over to the tables for just like two minutes. There's just some short questions, and uh, there are these questions. What was Paul's motivation for choosing to be a part of the Jewish purification custom? And what are examples of this from your life? or life in general today. Take like two minutes. Go quick. Okay. Let's, uh, let's hop back in and finish this up here because there's one last thing I really want you guys to do as we close out. So, uh, verse 26. The next day, Acts 21, verse 26. The next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Then, verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over... So Paul does it, does the purification, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. It says in verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple, and they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him. I just think this is an example of sometimes when we do the right thing, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to turn out the way we want it, right? Like, Paul does the purification, right? He does what he's supposed to, and then, boom, these Jews from Asia, people up in Ephesus and other areas, they come, and they're like... They're, they're mad at him. They find him. They were probably there because one of the feasts was happening, the Jewish feast. So it says, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. And it, Luke gives us a little understanding here, a little background. It says, They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that he had brought him into the temple. So what happened is, people had seen this guy Trophimus with them, who was an Ephesian, he was a Gentile, he wasn't a Jew, they just assumed, oh, Paul took him into the temple, which would defile the temple, it would make the temple unholy for a a non-Jew to go in there. So then verse 30, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Now you might think, how could that happen? But I can tell you, the city of Jerusalem is not a big city, and especially then it was even smaller than it is now. It actually wouldn't be that crazy for a whole city at that time to be kind of like, man, something is going on here. While they were trying to kill him, Paul, man, always trying to get killed. News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. So remember, the Romans, the Romans kind of occupy Jerusalem at this point. And it says that this, uh, this Roman commander, he at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So the whole reality is the Roman commander comes down. He doesn't care about the cultural significance, the spiritual significance of what's happening. It's all he cares about is he wants the riot to stop. He knows that there's not peace in Jerusalem. He's going to be in trouble. That's all he cares about. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth, Because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. Quite interesting. He wanted to know what the truth was. Verse 35, when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. So this, this was getting more and more, and so much so that the soldiers had to literally carry Paul back. Now Paul speaks to the crowd. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? And so what the commander says to him, he says, do you speak Greek? The commander replied. And so Paul goes, you know, how am I going to relate to this guy? I'm going to speak in Greek. And the commander says, you speak Greek? And then he replied, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? So this commander, the reason he arrested him so quickly is he thought of you as this uh, Egyptian insurrection guy that was uh, trying to start this insurrection. That's why he uh, took him into custody so quickly. Then verse 39, Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the, to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic. So now Paul switches and says, well, if I want to relate to this crowd, I need to speak the language that they speak, which is Aramaic. So then Paul goes into his, he gives his story. He really gives his testimony. I laid out some points if you if you want to write them down. Let's, let's jump into it and see how Paul shared his story. He starts out with his life, or he starts out by first connecting with the audience. He says, Then Paul said, I am a Jew. He's connecting with the same. I'm a Jew just like you, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. So Paul's like, I'm a Jew by birth. I was brought up in this city that's far further away from here, but guess what? I was brought up in Jerusalem. So the people there are gonna go, oh, like. We want to kind of listen to this guy now. He's from this area. You know, it'd be like you being from another country and you live here now and someone from the other country came over and said, oh, I'm from there. You'd be like, we have this connection already. You get me because you know where I'm from. He said, I studied under uh, Gamaliel, who was apparently a really uh, high up Pharisee and religious leader. And the people would have known him and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. So he's saying, I know the laws that you're talking about. He says, I was, I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. So Paul lays out, he connects with his crowd. He gives a little bit of his background. He finds a connection with them. And then he also admires them. I don't know if you noticed that, but when he said, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day, Paul takes a moment, even though they're trying to kill him, and he says, you know what? You're zealous for God. And he tries to at least find something small that he can admire in them. So that's part of his first part of his testimony. He connects with his audience. The second part is he starts telling about his life before Christ. Verse 4, he says, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul tells a little bit about his life before Christ. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was there when Stephen was stoned, and he condoned it. So he's kind of telling about what his life was like before Christ. Then in verse, uh, starting in verse 6, he tells about how he was born again to a new spiritual birth. He says, About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall, I, what shall I do, Lord, I ask. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you've been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. So this is how Paul was born again. He's going to road to Damascus. He's going to persecute the Christians there. And he encounters God in this great light. The reason it's such a great light is because it was a, just a portion of God's holiness that met him there. It was Jesus, just this bright light Paul couldn't even see him because of his holiness. He hears the voice of Jesus kind of questioning his old life, going, why are you doing this? Why are you living this way? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul kind of asks him, like, is that you, Lord? And then he is by faith called to go to Damascus. And with this new humility, Paul, who is this persecutor of Christians, top of the world in Jerusalem in his leadership, he is now blind, and led by his men into Jerusalem. This new level of humility. That's when Paul was born again. When he's called to go in Damascus. And he says, I'll go. Because he believes in Jesus as his resurrected Savior. And then Paul ends his story by going into what is his new life with Jesus look like after. And that's starting in verse 12. He says, a man named Ananias came to me. He was a devout observer of the law. So Paul's relating to his people again. He says, and I highly respect by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. I did a little research on this because you could read this and you could say, Oh, well, is this guy Ananias saying you need to to have salvation? You need to be baptized? The way that this could be read from... Uh, the Greek that it was written in, it could say, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, having called on his name. So saying, Conant, now that you've called on his name, now go and be baptized to identify with Christ, kind of that symbol of your sins being washed away. Verse 17, "When when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here would not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and to beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were willing to kill him. The Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul ends with talking about his new life in Christ. He said, look, now I had this these new fellowship with other believers, this new community, they were helping me. He was healed. He goes and he's baptized. He identifies himself with Christ. He's beginning to help others live their faith out, and he has this new call from Jesus. He's saying, the old people saw how I was. Now they see how I am now. So Paul shares his testament. Here's what I want you to do in these just closing minutes. I want you to take a minute on your sheet, and I want you just to write out, how could you connect with an audience if you were talking to them? What was your life like before Christ? What were the moments surrounding your, tes- your being born again? And what would you talk about your life after? Okay, so everyone grab a sheet and just, I'm going to give you like four minutes. I know we're a little bit over time. We'll be done in just a minute. All right, as you guys have finished up, I'm just going to give you a couple of things. One, if you're here today and you were getting to that part where you're like, hmm, how was I born again? And you're like, you don't really know. That's probably the most important, I think it's the most important decision you could ever make in your life to know why you could or how you could go to heaven. So talk to your leader about that. Um, Thanks, you guys, for. Listen today, and I just want to kind of sum up the, the, the three points. One is, in the upside down kingdom principle number one, is there's the human element. That human element is, God calls us to things. Could be a little dangerous. Other people say, don't go. We got to wrestle with the Holy Spirit in that. Kingdom principle number two, all things to all people to win some. What are some things maybe that God's calling you to say, hey, that's a little bit of a stumbling block to other people, that maybe you need to go, Lord, I'm going to give that up to you so that I could be all things, to all, or all things to all people to win some. And lastly, your story is a powerful tool. That's why I wanted you just to take a minute to write that. Paul's story was a powerful tool. I believe what your generation wants now is to hear stories of how Jesus works. Your life and your story is a powerful tool. Um, if you're a guest here today and this is your first time, leaders love them to help you uh, fill out a visitor information sheet. we got a $5 gift card we'd love to give you. Uh, we're really thankful you hung with us today, and uh, we'll see some of you back for tonight for uh, taking it to the streets. Well, last announcement is, if you want to put your name on the back, I'll text you to let you know if we got room for you. Let me pray to end this time, and then you can go. Lord God, we thank you, thank you for your word and your truth that speaks to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great-